This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. This is Because Feelings Matter, a series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. This segment talks about self-harm and suicide and may be a difficult topic for some listeners. If you need to talk about your problems, do look for local support within your community or call helplines like Talian Heal at 15555, Miyasa's 24-hour helpline at 1-800-8200-66 or Befrienders KL at 03-7627-2929. These numbers will also be available in our podcast. In October, conversations around mental health tend to spike due to World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October. Today, the language of mental health has entered most people's vocabularies, especially after the pandemic left no one untouched. A vast difference from just eight years ago when Amontep, known to family and friends as Sanju, first started experiencing symptoms of depression and psychosis. My name is Amontep Sajak Muniwong, uh, but I go by Sanju. I'm a Thai Indian, so uh, a Thai born with Indian heritage here in Bangkok. Um, and then I work in the field of mental health here in Bangkok, uh, running my own NGO called the App Foundation. Um, so before working in the field of mental health, uh, I was actually in hospitality industry. Um, and by 2015, I think, um, there were some symptoms that started showing up. Uh, towards the beginning of 2015, I started uh, being more introverted from actually loving to go out and meeting friends. Um, I started to just close myself up, stay in the room, uh, eat a lot, and I sleep a lot, and I didn't really take care of my hygiene. And I used to have a lot of headache. And at the time, honestly, like we didn't know what mental health was. We didn't know what depression was. We knew nothing. All we knew was reference from all the Hollywood movies that we talk, that we watch about mental health. And that wasn't really the best place or source of education around these topics. This lack of knowledge and understanding led to a few false trails, which sound harmless, but can be potentially risky when it comes to someone's mental health condition. At first, we thought I had a bad migraine. So we got myself checked out for migraine. Um, nothing was wrong. And towards the end of 2015, I started having psychotic symptoms. So I would have visual hallucination, auditory hallucination. And again, because we had no idea what was going on, it became even scarier. And because my family is very faith and spiritual based family, uh, even though I'm not, um, I think they, they try to find the best way or the best solution they think that would support me or help me. And so I was taken to see a spiritual doctor uh, rather than a psychiatrist. And so the person believed that I was um, possessed in a way. Um, and they wanted uh, something to be done to, to release me from that uh, demon. But it, it wasn't something I believed in. And it wasn't something that I took in very well. Uh, I think it was like it was the worst nightmare of my life to hear all of that, especially if you're not a if you're non-believer. Despite greater awareness of depression today as a mental health diagnosis, there is also a corresponding misuse of the term by people who use it to describe uh, rather more transient emotions. And this is 
partly because depression doesn't look the same for everyone. And we still have a long way to go before there is better understanding that there is no single profile of depression. I think the first thing you said was pretty 100% right in the sense that everyone, when they describe depression, is not going to be the same. Because even though it's the same disorder, it can be very subjective to different individuals. But for me, it was just that it was really dark because I'm constantly just by myself. And when I wanted to talk to someone, no one understood me. And the thought that goes on to my mind was all negative thoughts. It was all not wanting to be alive, not wanting to go out and meet friends, not enjoying, not finding happiness in any little moments at all. And it came to the point where my room became very filthy uh, with all these um, McDonald's and 7-Eleven's bags of food and whatnot that I would just bring in because I just didn't care about hygiene anymore. And I would have these things that I would buy and I will hide them in every place. Either it will be in my work bag, in my bedside table, in my office or in my car where if I feel bad about myself, I can just bring it out and then harm myself with it. And it was that point where my hands and my arms would just be filled with bruises and with cuts. And I think if people don't understand, they see that and they're like, what is going on? But at that point, my source of relief and my source of calmness was just to do something to myself. And in, it's either as a reward in a way or as a punishment. And you're constantly just doing that. And think about having been doing that from 2015 all the way to 2019. You need to berate yourself, not make sure that you are happy. Make sure that you are being happy is wrong. You don't deserve to be happy. Um, when people appreciate you, you, you don't deserve the appreciation or they're lying. When people say that you're doing so good, you're truly not doing so good. So you're constantly just talking yourself down. And that's the deep darkness that I, I mean. It's like your mind consuming you with just negative thoughts and negative behaviors that you just, it's just really hard to shake out. With Sanju, it was also really clear that his mental health disorder not only affected his moods and thoughts, but also wrought a dramatic change to his personality. So I actually am a, a very extroverted person. Before, I used to love going out. I used to love hanging out with friends, meeting friends. I would play uh, football, you know, every uh, Monday, Friday. I would go for badminton, just exercising, uh, gym workout. And I would go do a lot of projects with friends. So we used, I used to work with a lot of friends who does uh, social enterprises and they would have events and, and, and different projects in different areas. And it would just be, you know, meeting them, working with them, enjoying with them. And that all changed abruptly <laughs> within that time of just a few months for me to then become not going out, meeting people or just meeting one or two people that I feel safe with and not the rest of the other people. Um, when people ask me to go anywhere, I stop. I mean, let's put it this way, right? I'm a Liverpool fan for anyone who's listening, who's like a football fan. And I would wait till 4 a.m. in the morning or 3 a.m. in the morning just to watch that Champions League. Um but after depression, I just stopped. I, I stopped watching all sports. I stopped watching any TV. I stopped finding excitement in any of that. And even till today, it's so hard for me just to go back to watch, uh, you know, a, a good football match and whatnot. And so that totally changed me from being someone who enjoy living in the moment and enjoy time 
with friends to be someone who doesn't really care about the moment and doesn't really want to w- go out and meet anyone at all. And and so going through all that, were you actually working throughout this? For me, I was lucky that I was working uh, in my family business, which means that I wasn't holding a nine to five job. And so it means that timing becomes flexible for me. But definitely it wasn't easy because it was really hard for me just to get out of bed every morning. And then you have to force yourself out of the house um, to then go to work. And then when you're out of the house and to work, it's not like you're sitting in your office because you cannot sit in the office anymore. I just have to go sit somewhere. I could be sitting in a coffee shop that's like 50 meters from my office just because I have to work, but I cannot bear myself sitting in the office. But then I still have to do the office work. Or I would be sitting you know, in the cafeteria area of, of, of the office just to work around there. And instead of going back home at 5 or 6 p.m. like a normal person, I would go back home at 8 or 9 just so that when I go back home, I'm so tired, I'm just going to sleep. I don't have to think about anything else. And it becomes that a lot of times the work needs to be done in time. It gets delayed or the work needs to be done and it never gets done. Or I get I do too much of the work even when it wasn't being asked for. And it was because it's it's either that I wanted to do as much as possible because I don't want to go back home and face any any negative emotions or where I'm there physically, but mentally uh, and emotionally, I'm not present and therefore I'm not really completing any of the work. And I used to have a lot of issues as well because I was on medication, right? So I used to have those side effects where my hands and my voice would shake a lot. And so funny story is that every time I sign a check and then it's sent, it sent off to the bank, the bank was like, that's not the same signature. And I need to go to the bank to change the signature. And then when I come back and then I sign it again, it's like, that's not the same signature. And so it, it's constantly uh, going back and forth in that way as well. So it did affect my, my, my work in, in, in various ways. Um, but I'm lucky enough that uh, my staff, my colleagues, I would not say they understand, but they did not judge me and they were there to support me through as, as well. And so I'm truly grateful for, for their support throughout you know, the four or five years that I was in that darkness as well. Sanju finally found himself on the right path towards getting treatment and care, but it wasn't an easy one. And so I finally got myself registered at a psychiatric hospital. And I got myself checked out by a psychiatrist to then later realize that I'm diagnosed with major depressive disorder and psychosis. Um, and so it was it was sort of like that rainbow after the, the rainfall because now I know what was wrong and there's now a clear uh, guideline on how to get the treatment done. Um, but by April 2016, I was on over 10 pills, uh, 10 medication per day uh, for my depression, anxiety, psychosis, uh, not being able to sleep, um, and sometimes getting panic attack, uh, and so on that by April, 2016, uh, therapy itself did not work. Medication alone did not work. I had to go through electroconvulsive therapy as well, or, or ECT. And I went through that, uh, many times before my weight went up from 96 kgs to 140 something kgs and I started developing apnea. And so for that, every time I go under anesthesia for ECT, um, I would stop breathing. And so the doctor would be that, okay, this is not safe for you anymore. Uh, We cannot perform ECT on you anymore. And so I was then moved from being outpatient uh, to inpatient because I was severely self-harming myself as well and having suicidal tendencies. And so I was in the hospital the first time, I think for like maybe five, seven days. Um, But I would not come out of my room. 
I just felt wrong, felt weird. Um, at the same time, when I was discharged, it felt weird because ho- hospital became like this safe heaven. But when you come out, it's like people don't fully understand what was going on, what is happening. And this was back in 2016. Um, so in 2017, I think it came to a point where many people stopped talking to me. Many people did not understand me. I was feeling very secluded and I felt worthless and as if I was a burden. And so I attempted my first suicide in 2017. I was then quickly rushed uh, to the hospital, got put into the ICU and then back into the psychiatric uh, ward later on. And now this time when I came out of the hospital, I was blamed uh, for my actions and they did not understand where I was coming from. I felt that I was putting everyone down. I was being a burden. It was not a cop out. It was not me finding an easy way out. It was just me feeling that I wasn't worth it anymore. And so I actually moved out of Thailand for a bit, for three months to go live with my sister in the UK during that time. And it was so different because in the UK, when you say you have depression, people kind of understand what it is. They're open to it. I was on a plane and I was very big at that time. I was almost 160 something kgs. I was flying from Birmingham to Copenhagen and I was taking like a seat and a half in this small plane. I was very apologetic to uh, this old lady, you know, sitting next to me. I constantly say, I'm so sorry. I'm taking half of your seat. I'm so sorry. And she said, no, no, I totally understand. And then I told my story. She shared her son's story with me. And before we landed, she was like, can I please hold your hand? Can I pray for you? Can you please, whenever you feel bad, take this Bible from me. I've bookmarked the words that I would like you to read. And it was such a beautiful moment because you felt like someone is actually not judging you at that moment. And they were just there with you. But then when I came back uh, from UK, back to Bangkok, it became again that, you know, people did not truly understand what was going on. They questioned everything. When they see me being 170 kgs, they're like, you should go exercise, you should go run, not understanding, you know, anything that was happening. So in 2018, because of everything and the pressure, and I felt again that people didn't understand, and then maybe I should not be here anymore. I attempted my my second suicide. And so this time before attempting, I called one of the hotlines available, but my call went unanswered. And so I came out of the hospital this time feeling that you know, something needs to be done, something needs to be changed. And so I got myself dwelled more and more into the field of mental health. And so finally then afterwards, starting my own NGO, working in the field of mental health and getting a master's in psychology and neuroscience of mental health from King's College London. After the break, we'll look at how Sanju's mental health experiences have led to efforts to provide peer support as well as advocate for policy changes within the landscape of mental health care in Thailand. This is Because Feelings Matter, a series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. Stay tuned to Health & Living, BFM 89.9. In Thai, sati means to be mindful. And the name came together because whenever I would have a panic attack, I would call one of my, my very close friends, one of my best friends, and, and I would be my breath would be very shallow. And so he would be telling me like, which is to be mindful, be present, be mindful, let's breathe. And so sati in Thai, uh, it means to be mindful and to be in the present. 
and that's why I set the app because we want people to be in the present when they feel that the world is crumbling around them. Welcome back to Health and Living. I'm Xiao Ik, and this is Because Feelings Matter, a series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. This segment talks about self-harm and suicide and may be a difficult topic for some listeners. If you need to talk about your problems, do look for local support within your community or call helplines like Talian Heal at 15555, Miyasa's 24-hour helpline at 1-800-8200-66 or Befrienders KL at 03-7627-2929. These numbers will also be available in our podcast. Amon Thap Sachamuniwong or Sanju doesn't look or sound like someone with depression or psychosis. But then again, there is more to a mental health disorder than meets the eye. And Sanju is not unfamiliar with being stereotyped, especially when his treatment caused his weight to balloon dramatically beyond his original size. But he never once denied the fact of his diagnosis. I was very much confused when I didn't have my diagnosis. And I'm someone who wants to know what's wrong. And if I know what's wrong, then how can I make it better? And so getting that diagnosis for me was like that rainbow after the rain that I shared that now I know, you know, what is wrong with me and how can we take care of myself? And if taking medication is the course of getting myself better, then let's do it. I don't mind. I just didn't know that it was going to be so much <laughs> for so long. Um, and. I did see a lot of side effects, either it be my weight gain or when you take all of these medication, it can also have effects on your physical ability as well. So for example, my hands would shake constantly. My voice would shake constantly. I become slower and whatnot. But even then, I knew at times that it wasn't as bad as being off medication. And so for me, I continued throughout. And I think even now, um, my last appointment was probably six months ago. Um, so I still go see my, my doctor every now and then to check in. Due to his weight gain, Sanju had to deal with a lot of stigma. He was constantly being judged, even though the treatment was his lifeline. And the side effects? Well, they were something beyond his control. There were, there were definitely people who were supportive. Um, I definitely had a few friends that I could take refuge with. Um, I know that at times... Uh, even though my parents or my siblings might not truly understand uh, what was going on, uh, but I still find comfort uh, with them. For example, when I say that I have really bad headaches, I know that every morning my mom would come into my room and to give me head rubs um, and to just make sure that it's okay. Or when I'm having anxiety attack, I would call either my sister or one of my friends um, just to be like, I cannot breathe right now. Something is wrong. And just stay on the line with me. And I know that there are people out there who, even though they might not understand, they still supported me uh, when needed. But then there are also people who, when you say, I have depression, they're like, it's all in your head. Why are you caring about it? Or when they see me being overweight, I'm like, I'm on medication right now. Whatever I do is not going to, you know, even I talk to my psychiatrist, it's like, do whatever you want right now. It's good to exercise, but don't, don't believe that your weight will come down because you're still on a lot of medication. And so when people don't understand it and then they say, oh, you're just being lazy, you're just finding excuses, 
uh, depression is not real. It's all in your head. The voices that you hear is not real. Uh, you're just making things up. Um, these are the kind of things that sort of slowly drive you more towards that. Okay, people just don't understand. Like when I say that I cannot exercise or I can exercise, but the weight will not come down, they still don't believe me. When I say that I hear the voice, and you know, like the voices that you hear usually, like let's say sometimes when you're thinking, those are the voices inside your head that you hear, right? And it sometimes it's your own voice that is speaking back to you. But this is not the voice that is coming from inside your head. It's like a voice that is whispering by your ear, right? Or the voice that is whispering from far away. And it's someone else's voice. Or is that image of that person sitting, you know, by your bed, in your car, in your office, that you constantly see her everywhere you go. It's not something that you are making up. It's just that neurologically, psychologically, something is happening that is creating that for you. And people just didn't understand it. And yeah, I, I believe many of my friends did not know how to handle me or I became too much for them that they did stop uh, talking to me uh, for a while. And I don't, I don't blame them for that because, I mean, now that I know what was going on, it was probably not easy for them either. Um, but yeah, I wish people just know more of what depression is, what psychosis is, or what any other form of mental disorder might be, and know how to provide the best support they possibly can. Stigma is one of the invisible barriers to mental health care. For those with less of a support system, this might have been insurmountable. And it's not the only barrier stopping people from being fully supported in terms of their mental health needs. In Thailand, uh, we have about 860 psychiatrists in the country. So that's about 1.25 psychiatrists for every 100,000 people. And we have about 1.57 certified psychologists for every 100,000 people. And so we are a country of about 70 million people, and that is not enough. Let's say we have 860 psychiatrists. Majority of them would be in, in, in big cities or in Bangkok, and majority of them would then be in private hospital. And so when you go to a private hospital, um, the cost of, of treatment can be uh, pretty high. When I went, without the cost of medication, what I was paying to the doctor was around 63 US dollars per session. Um, that was without any form of medication. And luckily, we, we, we were taking medication from the private sector, private hospital before. My doctor was like, okay, don't take medication from here anymore because it's pretty expensive. I'm going to write you a prescription, go to the government hospital and then go get it from there because it becomes a lot more cheaper. And I'm also seeing a, a psychologist at the same time as well. And seeing that psychologist is costing me $50 per hour. And so luckily, my family is still in a, in a good financial position to be able to, to, to pay for this. But if you're a lay person who is working minimum salary jobs or, or, or not high enough salary jobs, you would not be able to pay this high. And it means that you would probably opt for just going to see no one than to go see someone. At the same time, I also had to go through electroconvulsive therapy at a government hospital. And of course, when you go to the government hospital, it's pretty cheap. It's not expensive. You know, you could spend maybe five to ten dollars uh, per session with with a doctor, but you're paying with time, and it's time that you cannot, you know, you cannot go out and work back your time. Right, money is still something that you can work out and then and then earn back. But time you cannot earn back. It's gone. It's gone. 
And so this is like the issue that I see, not just for myself, but that it's a barrier. Either it's time that is the barrier, either that in some cities or provinces in Thailand where they do not have uh, care professionals in the mental health field there as a barrier, or is the cost factor that's the barrier from people actually going in and getting treated. And it's these three barriers that I see that how can we try to fix it and make it that there's equal access for people to get at least foundational level of care. And because a lot of time people go to the hospital, even though they don't really need to go to the hospital. If I'm not okay, if I'm sad, if I'm not feeling well, I go straight to a psychologist or I go straight to a psychiatrist, even though you might not really need to go see them. And therefore you have higher number of people piling up at the hospital, even though they might not need to be there. And that's why in, in Thailand, you know, we look at the number and we take the number um, from, I believe it's, it's from the UN, their report, um, that a normal doctor should see maybe, let's say, 10 patients in four hours. But in Thailand, they're seeing up to 60 patients in that time span. This is the barrier that, that we are currently seeing and, and, and the struggle that we're currently seeing. Sanju isn't merely talking about abstract numbers. He lived it. And having experienced the gaps firsthand, he had a clear idea of what he wanted to contribute to the landscape of care, not in terms of treatment as such, but when it came to providing a connection for people facing their darkest moments. Um, so going back to, to 2018, uh, when I shared that I called one of the hotlines and my call went unanswered. And so when, when I got out of the hospital, I tried to understand what was the issue. And the issue was that there weren't just enough volunteers. Um, and so I tried to call the national hotline as well. And sometimes I have to wait online for maybe seven to 10 minutes. And I called them at 1 p.m., 8 p.m., you know, midnight, 4 a.m., just to try out different time as well. Then I looked to like, okay, how can, what, what can we do to make it better? I also looked at the suicide data here in Thailand and I saw that, okay, why is it that when they look at the gender, it's just male, female? What about the other groups uh, of gender identity? Where Where's the data? And so I found these gaps that there's not enough uh, peer support structure in the country. Uh, the data that we are collecting is not diverse enough. And that also when I shared the psychosocial, uh, biopsychosocial model, it also means that language also comes into play. So in Thailand, you also have different dialects and different cultures, which means that if you're from the Northeast, you might not speak the central Thai language. Therefore, you might want someone who is able to provide support in that local language. Or when you go down south, it's more of an Islamic community. So maybe the cultural aspect come into play. And so how can you make sure that people of the same cultural background is able to provide that peer support as well? Um, and when you go up north, it's a lot of hill tribes as well. So how can you make sure that, you know, that aspect is also respected? And so I used to drive Uber a lot in 2015, 2016. And it was so easy that whenever I was ready, I was free, I could just turn myself online and then go pick someone up. And then when I'm not free anymore, I just turn some, myself offline. And so the idea was like, okay, then how can I create a mobile app that allows people to just become a listening ear on the app? And whenever they feel like they're ready, they can just pop themselves online and be like, hey, anyone wants to call me right now, call me and then I'll listen to you. And then I, I found my first uh, advisor, who is a psychiatrist from Zambia, also one of my very good friends, Naeem, and also a part of the Global Shapers community. Uh, he then told me the idea of psychological first aid, that we can train general people, general public in basic psychological first aid, and we can 
and have them to be a professional peer supporter, which means that they already understand the workings of how to provide the best support at foundational level for someone. And so we developed a project together under the Global Shapers community uh, called Shapers for Mental Health. And we developed an e-learning course in basic psychological first aid, working with shapers who are psychiatrists, psychologists, and people with lived experience globally. And once that English version was completed, then myself, I brought it back to Thailand to work with uh, psychology students to then transcribe and translate all everything uh, into the Thai language and also the cultural aspect in the role play videos in, to fit the Thai narrative as well. And so we created an e-learning platform that would just train uh, general people in basic psychological first aid. And once they've received the training, they can then come onto our platform uh, to be a listener on our platform as well. And therefore they're listening with their heart and empathetically without uh, judging the other person that is calling in. And as I shared, there's like that data gap. And so for the users that come onto our platform and when they come on, they don't have to actually give us their real name. They can just use their, their, their nickname, but they would need to give us their date of birth, uh, the gender. We also work with another foundation to identify the different gender identity that's in Thailand. So we went with the top nine and people just pick the gender identity that they identify with. And when they do a call, we have a pre and post questionnaire. So the pre-questionnaire would be, what is your current level of negative feelings? Uh, do you have any thoughts of self-harm? And once they've answered, we connect them to one of the volunteers who is currently available. And once they're done with the call and they hang up the call, they will then answer that pre -po uh, the post-questionnaire again, same, what is the current level of your negative thoughts, the current level of self-harm thoughts. And then the listener, the our volunteers will then fill in uh, whether the person has suicidal ideation or not, and what are the stress factors that they call in for. And during the call, we also collect the the PO, the post uh, office box where the call is coming in from so that we we will not be able to locate where the person is, but we will know which district they're calling in from. And this allows us to create sort of like a heat map of the province, of the city, of the district and of the country to see, okay, which parts of the country have what kind of stress factor when we divide it by age, when we divided it by um, by by gender, then what gender is having the most issue or what gender is having what kind of stress factor right now so that we can then take this data and give it to the government sector and give it to the private sector. And hopefully that we use this to also create a localized uh, mental health policy because now we know the stress factor that's going on in, in each of the region as well. So this is the work that we're currently doing in Thailand. Of course, it's not easy, um, especially running as an NGO. But we have been running so far for the past two years. And our data from April 2022 to March 2023 uh, showed that we have about 8,000 calls that come in. But because we use um, VOIP or voice over internet protocol, if you do not have stable enough internet, you might not get connected to, to one of our volunteers. So out of those 8,000 calls, um, about 4,000 got uh, connected to our listeners, but then only about 2,700 got picked up, which means that a conversation occurred through our system. And through these 2,700 uh, uh, calls, the average length was at about 16 minutes and 29 seconds. Some did go on for hours. And so we did ask our advisor, who is a psychiatrist here at the Department of Mental Health, what is the baseline? And he said, if you're able to cross that 15 minutes mark, that's already good because that means that a person have trusted you enough to share for 15 minutes and therefore anything after that is additional. And so we took that as a baseline that, okay, these calls were successful because the average was 16 uh, minutes. 
And so in that whole year, we provided about 44,400 uh, minutes of peer support through our system. And to date, we have trained about 405 uh, basic psychological first aider uh, who is providing their service on our platform. But as I said, everything is not easy because we have about 5 to 10% who are very active on coming online and, and, and providing their time. And some, uh, unfortunately, have not uh, been able to find the time to, to, to provide their service yet. But we hopefully will, will be able to continue to grow and, and provide more support to the people. I was curious as to whether Sanju's app would be able to connect callers with the care that they need, such as through a referral system, especially if it was someone in crisis. So we do not have a system that would connect them to any other system yet. We are still working on that and finding the right partners uh, for that to be able to do so because we, we also need to take it into consideration that if we work with private sector and someone is calling in from, let's say, middle to low income families, then if we connect them to the private sector, they will not be able to get support. At the same time, if they're calling in from certain provinces and we connect them to uh, a hospital, it could mean that that hospital could be 40, 50, 60 kilometers away from them as well. So we're still trying to figure this issue out of how we can provide um, the right support. But so far, when people do call in, as part of the psychological first aid, you will also need to be able to identify if the person is calling in and they have like, five stress factors that they're calling in with. Our, our volunteer will be, should be able to identify what is the most concerning stress factor. Is it financial? Is it relationship? Is it mental health? Or what is it? And if it's financially related, then they have that sort of information of where they can send the people to or what information they can send the people. If it's um, relationship, then there's that information of, okay, then here's the the place, the, the other number you can call to get support on that aspect as well. So these are, are the information that uh, we provide as a listener pack to our volunteers and that they can use um, to then provide further information to, to the people who call in as well. But majority of the calls that we see so far, let's say within 100 calls, two calls will have high suicidal ideation. The rest would just uh, not have uh, suicidal ideation or maybe pretty low. Um, but most of the call is where the user call in because they have that something that abruptly caused them stress that they called in. And after a while, they're then able to continue their own life and therefore they don't call back into our system. And there are about 18% of people who are clinically diagnosed that call into our system. And for them, it's merely just finding someone to listen to them when people around them don't fully really understand what's going on. And so for them, they're already getting treated. So there was nothing more for us to provide them apart from just a, a, a listening ear. So I'm going to zoom out now. And, and this is a big question. What can we do to better recognize and support people with mental health problems? I mean, you've created an app and that is addressing one of the many gaps at the community level. What else would you like to see being changed? Oh, my God. That's, yeah, that's definitely a big question because... There's so much that is needed to be done. I feel that in an Asian culture, what we lack is that emotional intelligence and emotional education. And I just wish as, as much as we have physical education in school, if we can have mental education as a priority in school as well, where we teach students about realizing their own emotions, understand their emotions, knowing that even negative emotions are not bad emotions. It's just us being human, which means that if you're angry, you're angry. It's nothing to be ashamed of. 
But many times we will get that, oh, don't be sad. That's not a good thing to be. Don't be angry. You're being, uh, you're not being nice. You're not being cute because you're being angry and whatnot. But as, as humans, we feel what we feel. And so if we do not learn to accept those feelings since we were a kid, it becomes harder for us to reflect upon those emotions and truly understand why are we feeling that way? What causes us to feel that way? So it's, it's all about teaching that young the youth about emotions and having higher emotional intelligence, emotional hygiene and, and mental education within the school. At the same time, you know, at least in Thailand, we are now an old age society. So we have a lot of people above the age of 65. Like I believe it's like one in three uh, people will be above the age of 65. And so they are also at the risk of other mental health disorder or neurological disorder that is more towards uh, the older uh, generation as well and so how can we provide the best support for them not to feel that they are left out not to feel that they are lonely it's also harder for them because they are at that group that are not receptive to any new ideas it's already set in their ways of what i believe is what i believe and therefore if you bring in other aspects of health care mental health care and whatnot they might not take it so it comes down to how can we provide the best support best educational tools for youth to be able to understand their own emotion, especially at that fa- at that uh, developmental stage of when they're starting to build their own society, their own community, where their own emotion, their identity is being formed. It's that crucial stage where they really need to learn about emotions and, and, and feelings as well. And as we move on, how do we then provide better care for older generation as well? And I think lastly is about us ourselves. You know, like we do not have to understand what mental health disorder is. We do not have to understand what depression is and whatnot. But I think what we truly need to harness as an individual is that listening skills. How can we listen to someone without judging them because their life experience is not the same as ours and ours is not the same as them? How can we live with someone by holding space for them to share truly and we are just there merely to just listen and to reflect upon all of their emotions? And if we do want to provide them any form of advice, can we ask them for their permission first that, hey, is it okay if I share what I went through with you in case it can be beneficial for you as well? Or can I give you some advice so that they, the person don't feel that you don't fully understand them and you're just trying to push your narrative over their feelings? And so if you're able to harness this uh, empathetic circles within our own community, that would mean that we're creating a lot of safe spaces, safe pockets within our own community that people who feel that they're excluded, secluded from the community still have their voices being heard. And as soon as we are able to allow people to feel that they're being heard or allow people to feel hopeful for the future, we can definitely slowly bring people out of that dark situation or, or darkness that they're in to see light as well. But we just need to find a way to build that um uh, safe spaces within, within our own community as much as possible. According to the World Health Organization or WHO, statistics from 2019 showed that one in every eight people or 970 million people around the world were living with a mental disorder, with anxiety and depressive disorders being the most common. That could be you or me or someone we know. So we can all play a part in creating these safe spaces because mental health ultimately affects every one of us. I think for someone who is struggling right now, find the person that you can take refuge in um, and talk to them and share 
uh, your story with them. Or if you haven't gotten yourself to go see a psychologist, a psychiatrist yet, know that it's okay to go get help from, from professionals. It might sound scary. It might mean that people will think that you're crazy because it's still a stigmatized topic. But you need to do what is best for you. And for anyone who is taking care of anyone else who might be going through uh, difficult times or actually have a uh, mental disorder, please get yourself acquainted with the idea of psychological first aid and peer support because it will let you know how to hold that space to listen to someone and how to listen to them in a way that you don't have to agree with them. You don't even have to advise them anything, but you just have to reflect how they're currently feeling. And if you have the ability to reflect their emotions and their feelings, they themselves will be able to then feel like they're talking to a mirror. And when they're talking to a mirror, it means that they're getting guidance back towards themselves from themselves as well. And they'll be able to find that light by themselves. So if you can do that to hold that space for them, that would be very crucial to help them feel hurt and feel hopeful in the future as well. Would you say that you're in a better place now? That you're no longer in that dark place that you described earlier? I would say yes and no. I still have days where I fall down. You know, I still have days where I am able to smile and be happy. Um, when people send me appreciation message or or, or gratitude or whatnot, it's still hard for me to accept them because I still. Geared towards more uh, negativity than positivity, which means that if you, if people say, "Oh my God, you're so amazing," I'm like, "Nope, I take a step back. I don't accept it because I don't believe you." And that's something that I'm still trying to learn. And a lot of times, it's when people give me too much compliments, I then have to sort of punish myself because I don't believe in anything that anyone is saying. So I'm still working on that. And there's still days where I still fall down, but I think that that comes down to also learning about resiliency, right? That on days that you fall down, it could be one or two days of your life, and then you continue back up. And as long as you learn that every time you fall down, you can get back up, and every time you get back up, you might fall again, then you know that this is just temporary. It will, it's just going on like a wave, and there'll be bad days, there'll be good days, but as long as you learn how to ride the wave, it'll be fine. So. I would not say that I'm 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 all good, and I'm also not going to say that I'm all bad. I'm just being human and riding through my emotional wave. This is because feelings matter. A series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. If you missed any part of the show, or if you'd like to listen to previous podcasts, you can search for it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.